Hey, Gloria. What's that? For the fellowship? For the fel- you bought a you bought a potluck dish for the fellowship today? Oh, you know, Gloria, today we're not actually having a potluck meal. I love the idea and think I think maybe we should have more potlucks and gatherings of the church, but <clears throat> we're talking about fellowship today, but it's actually not about it's not a potluck. Oh, you saw the word fellowship and you just thought automatically it's about I gotta bring a potluck today. Ah, I see. Well, Let's set it. What did you bring again? Uh, uh, green enchiladas. Green enchiladas. Okay. Well, why don't you and I, why don't we meet after church? Okay. Okay. So, but we're, we're going to talk about fellowship and, and then you and I can talk about fellowship after church. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, well, thanks, uh, Gloria, for your initiative. So in responding to uh, what you thought would be a potluck today, but actually it's not a potluck, but we're going to talk about fellowship. So, uh, and uh, many of us are probably not unlike Gloria. We think about fellowship and uh, right away we think about getting together and having a gathering or having a meal together, which isn't a bad thing. And in fact, as we look at the scripture today, that's a lot of what happened in the early church is uh, new believers gathered together around uh, around food. But today we're going to talk about um, uh, what fellowship is in the life of the church. So Cliff's been preaching through Acts 2, uh, and we've been looking in Acts 2 at marks of the church, and we've been looking at what the church has been devoted to. And last week, uh, Cliff talked about devotion to prayer, and as we looked in Acts 2 towards the end of that uh, chapter, I, I was really, um, I think, out of three sermons that he talked about devotion, I, I think that was the sermon where I was, I was just struck by that word devotion. I think it took three sermons for it to kind of sink into me is about th- these guys uh, were, were devoted. And I realized I don't think that much in my life about that idea of devotion, but it's this idea, right? And Cliff talked about it, of being sold out to, uh, completely sold out to something. And I think I just, I just had to stand back and I reflected on this during the week about uh, what in my life am I devoted to? And in this text that we've been looking at in the Scripture and we're going to look at today, these early believers had an encounter with the living God and the whole of their life was turned upside down such that the very core things that they were sold out to got replaced by a new set of things that they now were sold out to. Whatever they were sold out to coming in, now there was this transformation that came uh, in their lives as a result of this encounter with, uh, with the living God. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to look at what does it mean and what did it mean for the early believers to be sold out to fellowship. Um, not just sold out to having potluck meals together, but something more substantive that's in the scripture that we're going to look at. Uh, it was a very demanding, fluid, and unscripted time for these early believers in the first part of Acts. So if, I'll just recount some of what's gone on there. So um, uh, these believers had had this experience. There's about 120 believers on the other side of Jesus' death and his, his resurrection. Uh, after Jesus' death, he rose from the dead and appeared to the believers these 120 uh, numerous times over the course of 40 days. 
And in the course of that time, they kept hearing Jesus talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said to them, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the whole ends of the earth. So they heard Jesus talking about this Holy Spirit. So they was building this anticipation, and they were staying together in Jerusalem. Jesus ascended, it says in the early part of Acts, and he was taken out of their sight. And now they're left alone. 120 early believers. They have a crisis immediately that they have to deal with. One of their leaders has committed suicide. Uh, Judas has taken his life, and they're having to deal with the realities of uh, that loss and about his betrayal. His betrayal of Jesus in the upper room before Jesus' death. So a leader in, the, in this group of early band of believers has betrayed them. He's taken his life. So they're having to contend with this reality, and now they're having to replace him in leadership. So they take care of that. They do that. Um, they're meeting together in Jerusalem. They're staying in this upper room, the same place where Jesus uh, met them. And on the, in the, the time right before his death, at the time the night before he died, he instituted this new remembrance uh, of remembering him in a fresh way. So they've had the Last Supper, so to speak, together there. And now they're meeting there for prayer constantly. And they're waiting. They're waiting for this Holy Spirit that's to come. And then up comes the Feast of Weeks in the Jewish calendar. And so all of these Jews are coming around from the outlying areas into Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. It's a harvest festival. They're celebrating uh, the harvest. And people are coming from all places. It's a diverse group of people, old and young, rich and poor. Uh, They're coming from all kind of walks of life for this annual festival. So they gather there. And then they have this amazing experience together where... As they're gathered together during the festival, a rushing wind comes. Imagine the sound of a rushing wind like a fighter jet that flies low over an air show and just brings a a sound of of wind. Uh, And then there's a boom too. No boom here, but we get to see a fire, what looks like fire, dancing in flames above the heads of, uh, of the apostles, or these 120, while they speak in different languages that all the people that are gathered there can understand. So it's this intense, uh, dynamic, uh, sort of signs and wonders moment where the Spirit comes, and then uh, the people don't know what to make of it. And so they, uh, they, they think that maybe they've had too much to drink. Fortunately, Luke, who's accounting, recounting the story, he uh, gives us and gives Peter the words to say, Look, this thing happened, it's, it's at 9 o'clock, Luke records, P- Peter's standing up, it's 9 in the morning, they're not drunk, and then Peter goes ahead and describes for uh, the people what it is that's just happened to them. He points to the Old Testament, he interprets what's taken place, and the people, it says, were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart in terms of their response. It's a, it's a very um, unusual word or phrase, but... When we think about being cut to the heart, it's the sense of uh, they were just taken up short. They were brought to deep conviction. They were brought to a place where they, they, they were sober. Uh, they heard this word, and it penetrated their thoughts and their attitudes, their motives. And so they had this experience of Peter preaching. They're cut to the heart, and they just say, what, what should we do? Uh, and when he says that, Peter says, repent, 
be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of forgiveness and that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. They heard that word and then um, they didn't receive it and they all left for their hometowns. No, that's not what the text says. No, not at all. It says those who welcomed the message were baptized and 3,000 were added to their name. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine if you were at a uh, Billy Graham crusade or how many of you have ever been to a, a Greg Laurie Harvest crusade? You've, you're there and um, you see people coming to faith, you know, streaming down and they come from the stands and they come to faith. Imagine if those people didn't go home. Imagine if you were a church right in the shadows of Anaheim Stadium or uh, the Rose Bowl in the 60s or 40s or whenever Billy Graham came and spoke there. And, and uh, all the people that came to faith, uh, they, they never went home. If you were in the local church, you'd be breaking out the barbecues. You'd be, you know, kind of going to the ATM. You'd be, you know, we've got we to gotta lodge these people. We've got to provide food for them. It's kind of what's happening in Jerusalem. So all these people have come, but it's as if uh, now the church has, in, in one fail swoop, 3,000 added to 120, 3,120 people. They're all spending time, and they're devoting themselves to Bible study, to prayer, to fellowship, and to uh, into the, um, the time, well, they're just, they're, the whole time they're together, they're devoted to these new things that the Lord has brought brought to them in a new way of living. The Holy Spirit came just like Jesus had promised. People responded. They were cut to the heart by Peter's preaching. And I want us to read the text in terms of what we've just described. So it's Acts chapter 2, and this is where we're going to be this morning. So uh, you can use your pew Bible or or the Bible, rather, in front of you in the chair, and then we'll uh, have it up on the screen. So listen to the Word of God. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and to prayers. All came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What does Peter, or rather Luke, want us to see in this account, in this section of Scripture that we're looking at? I think, again, one of the things that Cliff's been focusing on and that struck me so much this last week is that this group of believers, the devotion of their life got changed and switched in this moment. They were devoted to something new. I thought a lot this week about what devotion means. Um, 
it's, it's kind of the idea that if, if, if this is not in my life, if this thing isn't in my life, then I don't want to live. It could be a relationship. It, it could be uh, a possession. It could be an opportunity or an experience. Uh, it's sort of like, this is what I am. This is what I'm committed to. This is what I'm about. It's a very uh, deep and powerful idea in word. Um, this is who, who I am. If you were to cut me, uh, you know, this is the blood that would come out. Um, so I, I almost thought today maybe I'd come with my face painted and sort of my shirt off and kind of have a Bridges logo, right? Because that's the image when I think of devoted. It's a Raiders fan or a Chargers fan, right? It's a football sports fan who you see people and by their appearance, they look very devoted uh, to uh, their sports team. Um, everything that these new believers were devoted to were things that they mostly were doing together. Going to the temple to pray. Breaking bread together. They were in fellowship together. They were studying the Word together. But Luke points out that they were devoted actually very specifically to this idea of fellowship. And that's what we're going to look at right now. What does it mean to be devoted to fellowship? Well, uh, Luke borrowed a word from the secular Greek in order to convey what was going on. So he borrowed a word called koinonia. Um, if any of us were living in the, in the 70s as adults, I was a kid, uh, then uh, this word was very popular with koinonia-type uh, music. There was churches called koinonia, and it's the Greek word for, for fellowship. But it had a secular usage. He's appropriating it and using it in a very, uh, very specific way for this group of new believers. So in its secular use, it, it really was reflecting the idea of close partnership. It was reflecting the idea of a close association relationship or a partnership around some specific thing that people held in common. So the way that it's mostly, uh, uh, or the most powerful or kind of like poignant use of it was around marriage. Uh, so two people in marriage... They have a partnership. They hold in common this relationship. Um, and they have this koinonia together. The Greeks thought about it in terms of an ideal, harmonious society where everyone together had held in common this picture of a harmonious, working set of relationships, common values in society. And that was koinonia. It was this fellowship, this partnering together around this vision an experience of life together in society that they held in common. So there's two ways that I think we could look at it. One is it's a, it's a, it's a, a mutual participation. It's a mutual bond that people uh, are carrying and holding among themselves. It's a, like a, 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 if you're part of a Little League, your kid's playing Little League, you are in partnership and hold in common uh, this experience with other parents. Or if you're part of a PTA group at a school, there's a partnership, an association that uniquely brings you together. You're holding in common this sharing around the vision or the, the tasks of the, the local PTA. So this idea of being in partnership or mutually holding together something that you have in common is one core idea. From the Scripture, we can look at the idea from 1 Corinthians 1.9. I don't know if we have that on the screen, but that was uh, a verse from the, our home fellowship Bible study this last week that captures this idea. In fact, the word koinonia is right there in, in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 9. It says this, God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship 
of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called into a close relationship together around the things of Jesus Christ. That together, the people in Corinth, what they held in common was their mutual participation and mutual sharing around what God, through Jesus, had done in their lives. What united them and brought them together was uniquely the work of Jesus in their midst. And it was this mutual participation. Um, and then this other idea of a mutual sharing. So it's something that we're, we share together. In Philippians, uh, the words used in Philippians by Paul a number of times, the word koinonia, this idea he shared, says to the church at Philippi that you share in God's grace with me. We have koinonia, we have a mutual sharing around the grace that God's given to us. Uh, he says in, in, uh, also that you share in the gospel from the first day until now with me. That together they shared the t- shared task of gospel proclamation and the gospel being expressed in their life. So the idea uh, of koinonia is, I'll put it this way, uh, in terms of like a, a summary statement, it's this. It's a close relationship based on what believers uniquely shared together and held in common with one another. The reality of fellowship um, is actually unaffected by whether people spend time together or not. Whether you spend time together or not is actually not the fundamental aspect of koinonia. If someone came into this church today, and perhaps someone is here today, who's curious about faith, who's seeking to know who Jesus is, but has not decided to let Jesus be the leader of their life. You're here, the person would be here in worship with us, could be participating, which would be a wonderful thing, seeking to know more about God. But because they don't have, yet at that point in their life, a decision to make Jesus the leader of their life and to become devoted to Jesus, they would be in association, they would be in proximity, they would be in presence with us, but they would not be in koinonia. Does that make sense? Because koinonia is about a mutual participation, a mutual sharing around something that people hold in common. And for the Christian church and for Christians, it's about something that they uniquely hold in common. Now, the acting out of what you hold in common is developed and it takes place in the midst of close relationship. But the reality of fellowship is not affected by whether people actually spend time together or engage in any mutual activities. It would be a mistake to think of fellowship merely in terms of social activity without considering the spiritual relationship that fellowship entails. So what is it that links or unites believers together? What is it that believers mutually are sharing? What is the mutual participation? In what are believers having in common? Well, the answer is actually right in our text. The answer is right in the text in verse 38. Let me read what it says. When the people heard Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said this, repent, be baptized, 
every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven and so that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The answer to what unites people who've been cut to the heart are four things that are found right here in the text. And they're actually four of the main things that unite us together in this body and in any body of Christian believers. It's repentance, a change of direction. It's baptism, a change of identity. It's forgiveness, a change of position. And it's the Holy Spirit, a change of possession. As I listen to how Peter responded to the people's question, what shall we do? I realized that it's his words that he speaks to them are what is creating for this group of what became 3,000 plus 120 people the defining marks of what unites them together. It's what they share in. These four things are what drew them together in a common union. Think about it. Before Peter's sermon, there 3,000 people of different ages. They're there around the Feast of Weeks. They have different socioeconomic classes. They're there for this festival in their shared Jewish faith. But now they hear a word that cuts them to the heart. They ask what we should do. And Peter says, be baptized, repent, be baptized, receive forgiveness from your sins, and receive the Holy Spirit. So now they're united in a whole brand new way around these four things. And these are the four things from this text that define their life together as a community. This is what fellowship is from this text. It's their united, your unity and participation in sharing in the common, uh, these, these four common attributes. Let me just say them again. These are the four things that are uniting this group of people. Repentance, which is a change of direction. Baptism, which is a change of identity. Forgiveness, which is a change of position. And the Holy Spirit, a change of possession. So we're going to look briefly at these, these four qualities and understand what's the implications for us as a group of people who come together but are united around something. And I think these are the things that, at least from this text, can tell us how do we go about uniting ourselves uh, more intentionally uh, around, around these very four attributes of the early believers. So first, they're devoted to repentance. Uh, have you ever thought about that? Being a person who's devoted to repentance? If you're a Christian, you're devoted to repentance. That's the invitation from God, to be a person who's devoted to repentance. So these Christians share and hold in common that they all repented. They have all chosen to repent. They were going one direction in their life, and then they were cut to the heart, and now they've gone another direction, and they're following Jesus. They came to the Feast of Weeks going this way, and now they're going another way. What does repent mean? It means simply to make a U-turn or turn around. Uh, there's a, uh, one picture of it that came to my mind this week was uh, a story that Dennis and Gloria Cates have told before 
about uh, when they lived in Texas. Um, and uh, they had uh, uh, a repentant moment in their life where they decided that they wanted to go to church. And uh, they, they decided to make a U-turn in their life and to pursue fellowship. They wanted to pursue church, but they didn't know how to go to church. And they didn't know where to go. Um, so what would you do if you're in a new city and you don't know, how, you don't know where to go to church? You might Google something. This is a long time ago, so they weren't doing that. So this is what Dennis and Gloria did. I thought it, it was very clever. So they, uh, they got in their car, and they started driving around on Sunday morning, and they started looking for other people driving their cars who were all dressed up. And in Texas, in that time, on Sunday mornings, uh, people who went to church got all dressed up. And so they uh, drove around, and when they saw a car with people that are dressed up, uh, they'd be going down the road, they'd see a car maybe coming the other way, they'd, they'd turn, and they follow that car to church. And that's how they started to find a church in Texas. So I thought that was very clever that they did that. Uh, but they had made a decision that they were going to, from going whatever direction they were going, they were going to go and find a church. And so that's literally what they did. They got in the car and they, they decided to, to drive and follow the direction into, into a, a church so they could experience church life. In the Gospel of Mark, Mark records Jesus' first words uh, in his ministry as having to do with repentance. And he gives us a picture of what repentance is in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 18. It says this, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Jesus' very first words that Mark records, we could assume, would be very significant and very important. And he has an intention behind why he's He's writing that these are the first words that Jesus spoke. In Jesus' first words, the kingdom of God is at hand or has come near. Repent, believe in the good news. And then juxtaposed right below and right next to that statement is a story. And that story is giving a picture of repentance. It's a picture of some men who are going one way, pursuing their vocation, their fishing, And at the end of the story, they've made a U-turn. They've dropped their nets, literally. They've let go of one life, and they've made a turn to pursue another life. A picture of repentance. Peter's answer to those first believers cut to the heart by the surgical truth of God's word was repentance. And it was for each one of us that has invited Jesus to be the leader of our life. At some point in our life, consciously or unconsciously, at some point, there was a turning away from something to the Lord Jesus. But it's also true that for these early believers and for us, that what we hold in common is not just a past decision and a past turning, but it's a present discipline and it's a present habit. Christians repent. And they repent, and they repent, and they repent again and again and again. 
the act of pursuing Jesus is a constant and continual act of turning away from our brokenness, from our sin, from the ways of the society around us, and to keep turning back towards Jesus. As we choose detours in our lives, it's about choosing back into the main journey with the Lord Jesus. Devotion to fellowship means devotion to repenting. And Mark's making this point in his gospel when he uses the first words of Jesus to record that he says a call to repentance. This last March, I had an experience of repentance that uh, marked part of my last year. It was an experience that happened because of uh, uh, some choices I made to uh, uh, hurt some other people. And it was actually an act of repentance that the Lord invited me to in relationship with our church leadership team. In the course of a meeting one night, um, I did not pay very good attention to my emotions, to what I was thinking, or what I, particularly around what I was feeling. And in the course of our conversation, I said some things very strongly, unthinkingly, and uh, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where you're speaking and you realize, what I'm saying right now is not really advancing the conversation with the rest of the people that I'm with. They're not actually engaging me with curious looks and, and nodding their head, but actually everything's gone silent. People are looking down. Folks uh, are, have, gone, have gone quiet. Have you ever been in a situation like that where that's the effect that your words have produced, uh, but that wasn't what you intended? Um, so that was the effect of my words that night. Uh, and I realized that I had not uh, paid attention to what I was feeling or thinking, had not governed my speech, I'd not had self-control, and so um, it was obvious in the course of that experience um, that something had gone wrong. And so over the course of the next day, uh, I knew that I needed to make a U-turn. In this situation, it was a U-turn that wasn't just a private choice, uh, of behavior, but it was actually one that required me to repair something that my going off track, so to speak, had done to hurt or harm or break something else, particularly break a relationship. I called Cliff. I said, uh, I didn't like the feeling of what happened last night, and I, um, uh, I want to get together and talk with you, and I want to apologize. And uh, Cliff said, yeah, I didn't like the way it felt either. Uh, and so we got together. We talked about that. The next time I met with the leadership team, I said, uh, after reflection, here's what I think was happening for me in that time. And I apologize for the way it didn't advance our conversation together, but rather it hindered it and it shut us down. Uh, would you forgive me? I repented out of that. And in doing that with the team and with Cliff, the Lord actually redeemed that and actually used that uh, to bring uh, uh, to bring forth other feelings and thoughts that others of us had had, uh, which was a redemptive grace from the Lord. Uh, it's just too bad that we, I had to lead us into a place where relationship felt strained and broken and uh, there was hurt. The first believers uh, had all things in common. One of the things they had in common was this act of repentance. They had repented, and they were now going into a journey of following Jesus where repentance would become a common part of their life together. How practiced are you in repentance? In fact, today as you're here in worship, 
Is there something in your life that you realize there's an invitation from God to make a U-turn from a choice, a direction, a relationship, uh, an aspiration, something that you've brought into your life that you realize the Lord's invitation actually is to detour, to U-turn from that detour back into responsiveness to, in obedience to his, his calling, His Word. Is there some word that you've heard that's cut you to the heart in this last week or even in worship today? And you realize what the Lord's calling you to is to turn and go in that, that direction, to respond to what the Lord's saying. The first believers had all things in common, and I believe um, that the thing, one thing they had in common is that they realized they didn't have it all together. Um, they had sin in their lives, um, and they had forgiveness too, which we'll come to in just a minute, and they weren't ashamed. Um, they were able to hold the reality of there being people that uh, were broken, were incomplete, were on the way, uh, and that they had all together made, at this point, one giant U-turn to follow the Lord together. Uh, but there is going to be need to be a lot of route adjustments along the way. I think that being real about sin and brokenness that was in their lives was probably going to become something essential for their capacity to make those U-turns or repent. And I think that's true for us, um, that being... Being uh, people of repentance is also to be people that are honest and real about uh, our life together and what's real about us. Last spring, I was in a home fellowship group uh, with Frank Wohls, among others. And Frank came one night and he handed me this book, this red prayer book. And I, uh, I op- uh, he said, I think you might find this interesting. Uh, I opened it up. And I saw a bunch of prayers from 1990 and 1991. I realized what Frank had just given me. In 1989, Denise and I became a part of the forerunner church of Bridges Fellowship. It's called Bible Fellowship of Riverside. We'd been a part of another church in town. Um, The pastor had been called to come be the pastor of this church. That church shut down, and we uh, came to be a part of uh, of this Bible Fellowship Church, which became Bridges Church. 1989 is the year. Uh, the church we were part of had home groups, fellowship groups, small groups. The church we joined did not. Uh, so we decided we would it be okay if we continued with our home group that we were, we'd been meeting in and been meeting with. So we did, but then, um, and we, joined, we met with the people that we'd been meeting with. So we had uh, two single women, a teacher, uh, another teacher. We had uh, the brother of one of my friends, our friends. He was uh, a, a skeptic slash curious person about faith. Wouldn't have considered himself a Christian. Uh, a couple that were friends of ours. That was the, the husband was a mechanic. The wife was a graduate student at UCR. And then another couple that were looking to try to move out of the area. And then in this new church, there was this other couple that decided they wanted to join this group of young people named Frank and Judy Wolves. Um, I haven't quite calculated how old they were at that point, but um, they were a lot younger. So 1990. So uh, Frank uh, pulls out in the spring this red book 
with prayer requests of this group of people. And I, uh, you know, that's Frank, right? Frank's a prayer warrior. And he was, a, he was praying then. And so I, I started reading it. Tom, this is uh, January 30th, 1991. I shared with the group um, that my priorities uh, in faith did not seem right. And I was inviting God, uh, Frank wrote, that Tom asks that he would let his priorities be correct in all activities and that God would be first in his life. Um, there's another prayer request from uh, uh, another person about uh, their work, another person that needed prayer for um, their, uh, 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 where is it here, um, for a test, another that needed uh, prayer because they were in uh, a situation where they, they felt like they were tired and that they needed uh, the Lord's strength. Another person needed a job. Um, another person said, I'm trying to learn about faith. I need help to know more about who Jesus is. And, then, and so written throughout this, uh, this, this book are prayer requests of people that had in 1990 and 1991, Denise and I in this hodgepodge kind of group of singles and marrieds and non-Christians and people we didn't know like Frank and Judy and wondered why do they want to meet with us and get into this group. We all met together and um, we opened our hearts to one another in the context of that group and uh, began to pray and ask God to change us. Um, Jesus was clear in his preaching that he didn't come for the people that were well, but for the people that were sick. Sick with sin and sick of sin. That's <laughs> how I think of it. Mark chapter 2, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come not to call the righteous people, but sinners. One could actually make the claim from this that if you don't know that you're sick, you probably don't need, uh, you don't need to be in church. So, Because uh, Jesus only came for the people that knew that they're sick. Um, Christians share in the reality that we're sicker than we know and we're worse than we want to admit. We're sicker than we know, we're worse than we want to admit. Um, that's Jesus' judgment on, on, uh, on us uh, as Christians. Uh, the picture in the, the, the text we're reading is about Christians who are devoted to fellowship and they're devoted to uh, this shared reality of repentance and the fact that there's brokenness and sin in their lives. Christians should be the most honest, contrite, humble, and repentant community that anyone could ever know. But regretfully, that's often not the case. Too often, we're like people in a hospital who want to pretend that we're well for fear that other patients will find out that we're sick. And that's, as Cliff would say, crazy talk. Can you imagine you go to a hospital and people are trying to hide the reality that they're sick? No, they're sick and they're not ashamed. That's why they're in the hospital is because they're not well. Sick people know they're sick. They take their medicine and they don't hide their sickness. For the Christian sick with sin, the prescription is the one that was given by Peter. When they're cut to the heart, the invitation, the prescription for the sickness and that is why they were cut to the heart. It's because they realized how sick their heart was. The prescription is to repent. 
One author said, we need to nurture churches where people are allowed to be real and where people are allowed to sin. Where people are allowed to sin. That doesn't mean encourage sin. But if we build churches that don't allow people to sin, then they have to cover it up. I've been part of many small groups over the years. And I've had the privilege of, by God's grace, being a part of small groups where the participants shared together the reality of their sickness alongside sharing the reality of the truth of their forgiveness by God and the hope of a new beginning in Christ. I've been in groups in the church where people have said these things. In the group, with men and women, young and old, together, honestly being able to say, I'm struggling in my marriage to trust my spouse. I'm held captive to what others think of me. Late nights in media are an incredible sexual temptation for me. The struggle that my spouse and I are experiencing here in our marriage is in part because of my struggle with my sexual identity. I've had the privilege of being in a place where by the Lord's grace, He knitted a community of safety, of faith, of honesty, of humility, and His Spirit came and allowed people to be real about who they were and how they had been and where they were going. I just wonder for us if, you, if we've created those places in our lives. Have you created that place? Have you pursued the place or sought to seek a place where that kind of transparency and honesty can be received and accepted? It's in the, that place that the Spirit comes when the Spirit's invited and the repentant heart is opened up that He begins to grow something new and do a new thing. So part of my invitation even for us today is to find that prayer partner, find that Stephen's minister, find that home fellowship where that can be true for you. Even as I make that invitation, however, I'm conscious that for some of us... Um, we pretend we're not sick because uh, the church has not been a safe place to admit our sickness. For some of us, the church has been a place of judgment or a place of rejection in the midst of our sickness. I remember some time back in my role as a campus minister at UCR, um, uh, when a person stood up in a, in a meeting and uh, began to say some things that... Um, that related to their experience of, uh, of the church not being a safe place to be real. Uh, they had expressed that that had been true for them in their life in different ways, but they had decided they were going to, to choose to step into making the church a safe place to be real, and they were going to speak about their own sickness and the sickness that had come upon them and out of their own choice and the choice of others. So we were at a meeting on campus, and this young woman stood up, and uh, there was a group of maybe 75 or 80 people, and she stood up, uh, and she said this. Um, she got up at the first gathering, or I'll recount what happened. She got up at the first gathering of the year, uh, and she talked about a struggle with anorexia, uh, an eating disorder. She described her parents' struggle in their marriage in which her mother unquestionably assumed that her husband's romantic pursuits with other women was because she wasn't sexually attractive enough. It was her fault. 
And so the student explained that she found herself chained to the same similarly distorted view of herself, in view of men, in view of relationships. Sam was at the meeting for the first time that night. He listened. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. He described later his realization he'd never heard such words in a Christian gathering. He'd grown up in the church in the context of communal worship and in youth groups. He'd never heard anything like this. He said, I wanted whatever that woman had that permitted her to be so real, and I wanted whatever the group gave her that allowed her to be so free. I wanted whatever that woman had that permitted her to be so real, and I wanted whatever the group gave her that had allowed her to be so free. That's part of my vision for uh, our church, that increasingly and continually um, we give ourselves as believers to being people that can be casting a net of safety for others and creating a context in which we can be real and we can practice repentance. Believers devote themselves to repentance. Have you been convicted by the Spirit? Has the Lord met you in some way where there's a call to repent? I just want to invite you to be responsive to the Word of the Lord to you in this area, and that as a community, that would mark how we live life together, that we're quick to be men and women that repent. And I want to touch on these three other areas more lightly, but I want to highlight that the apostles, or rather these new believers, were devoted to a new identity found in baptism and also to a new position as being forgiven from sins. In our devotion to Christian fellowship, we share in common that we're people of repentance, yes, people who've turned, and who people who keep turning away from sin and brokenness. But as Peter highlights in the call to conversion, we actually are people that turn toward something, not just away from something. And so much of the New Testament is, in fact, about what we turn towards. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. In our shared participation in baptism, Christians share a new identity, and we share a new forgiveness for our sins. Baptism is a natural result of repentance and conversion. It's an outward sign of an inward change that's taken part in someone. It's an act of identification, of identifying yourself with what Christ has done on the cross, his death and resurrection, and a new life that results. The word baptism is actually transliterated from the Greek from a word that's actually, it sounds just like it, baptizo. Um, and it, we learn in, the, uh, in reading from literature from the time of, of when the New Testament's written, how this word was used in the secular culture and why uh, it's been applied, why the early church took and used it to describe this identification with Jesus. So uh, the way that uh, uh, the, we, we learn really what the word is, one of the key ways is by something that was written about 200 B- B.C. by a Greek uh, poet and, and, and philosopher named Nicander when he, was, he wrote an account of how you pickle vegetables. Have you ever heard of this? So he writes this account of how to pickle vegetables. He says this, you take the vegetable, you dip it in boiling water. And he uses the word bapto, you dip it, but it's a temporary change. And then he says that you 
You baptizo. You baptize the vegetable in vinegar. You baptize. That's the verb. Putting it into vinegar is to baptize it. And um, both of those words, bapto, putting the, the vegetable into hot water and then putting it into vinegar, they both talk about immersing the vegetable into a solution. The first is temporary. The second is permanent. When it goes into the vinegar, the thing, it's pickled. <laughs> it's changed. And the notion, the picture there is now, the vegetable has been identified with the vinegar and it's become something completely different. It's produced a permanent change. When the word is applied to the Christian into the act of what we know as baptism, the word refers to our union and our identification with Christ. It refers to a real change, just like the vegetable now becomes this pickled thing. (laughs) Do you remember your baptism? If you've been baptized, do you remember your baptism? Do you have memory of it? I was baptized uh, as an adult uh, in, uh, uh, when I was in college in the backyard of someone's, uh, in someone's pool. Um, so some of us are baptized in a church like this. Some of us have a different form of baptism other than full immersion. But I was baptized in, in someone's backyard because where we met as a church didn't have any other place to do it. Um, I remember very vividly how cold the water was. Uh, and we were still doing it in the person's uh, hot tub or their, you know, the jacuzzi. But they, uh, they felt so bad they, that the water was, the heater was broken that they had actually hooked a hose to their water heater in their house and emptied it into the jacuzzi in hopes that it would take away the sting, which it did not. So uh, I remember uh, that experience, and I remember um, that it was a moment of um, real significance as I realized that what I was doing was uh, I was on a new trajectory and that this was a mark of this identification with Christ. Um, in other cultures, uh, baptism is actually the mark of faith. In our culture, people will ask, when did you become a Christian? And what they mean by that is, when did you make a decision to follow Jesus? In many other cultures, the question that's asked is, when were you baptized? When were you baptized? That's the mark of identification with Christ. Christians are devoted to living in a new identity above every other identity. Jesus is my Lord, my leader. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm forgiven from my sins. This new identity is what we share in common. It's part of our shared participation and our mutual sharing, this new identity. Also, as Paul says, is there's a rather, uh, what Luke's recording is that there's a new position that these folks, these early believers are sharing in terms of their forgiveness from sin. Christians share in common a new position before a holy God, not condemned and guilty, but forgiven and justified. We not only freely confess, I'm a work in progress, but we proclaim joyfully that Jesus has done a work in me. And I'm moving from death to life. I'm moving from this place to this place with Jesus at the head. The scripture says, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. The scripture says, as we've learned in Romans from Cliff's preaching, that whoever's died they're freed from sin. 
The folks in the passage we're reading today in Acts 2 were learning a new devotion. A new devotion about being identified with Jesus and about being people that had their sins forgiven. I was thinking this week about the fundamental transformation that was hap- had happened for these folks in terms of a new identity. And I thought about Cameron Wolf. Some of you know that Cameron, Frank and Judy's um, grandson, left for the military just in this last week. And um, that's a great example of a new identity. Um, he's a soldier. He's, at least as Judy told me, she thinks he's a private so I'm not sure if that's what you are when you first enter into the army. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt that he's adopting a new identity uh, as part of the military. There's a transformation that's taking place for him, and there's a transformation that was taking place for these new believers. These new devotions, they're something that we learn. There's something God does in us, right? Um, Jesus is remaking us in our, his own image. The scripture says all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. We're learning as believers what we hold in common is this new journey of faith to live before God and allow Him to transform us. But it's also this new learning of devotion. It's something that we do. It's not just all something God does. It's something we do. The scriptures replete with commands such as this. Set your minds on the things above and not on the things of the earth. Love your neighbor as yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Living with new devotion requires our initiative. It requires us to take action on our part. I remember as a young Christian at UCR, I had grown up in a Methodist church. I came to UCR in my freshman year. I made a decision to invite Jesus to lead my life during Christmas break. I came back to the campus. I was connected. I got connected into, I'd been going to the Methodist church downtown. I got connected into a Bible study in my dorm. Uh, and I went to a meeting where someone stood up, a, a, a pastor stood up and said, if there's anyone in this room that just wants to learn more about what it means to follow Jesus, um, yeah, I'm glad to talk with you about that. I talked with him later. He said, Years later, as we became friends, he said he had never had an instinct to stand up and say that kind of a question in a meeting uh, before, and he never really had an instinct to do that since. Um, There were sign-ups for Bible studies and ways you could get involved to grow your faith, but he just felt in that meeting that he was supposed to stand up and say, if there's anyone here that wants to just know more about how uh, to follow Jesus, uh, come talk to me. And so I'm in the room and I'm a very young believer, and I realize I don't really know anything about what it means to be on this journey with Jesus. Uh, and so I said, I think that's me. So I went and talked with him, and we began to study Scripture together, and he began to encourage me in terms of my relationships with people around me, to ways to um, things that I was struggling with. And, um, and so out of my initiative because I realized that I needed, I needed to, to follow this path of Jesus in a, in a, in a fresh way, a new way. Um, the Lord met me in that. And that's, the same thing happened with the initiative with my son, who was youngest son, Matthew. He was 
involved in a Christian fellowship in college. They invited him to be a leader. He wasn't feeling like he wanted to do that. And so someone said, well, if you're not a leader, you know, have you heard of the sophomore slump? You know, if you're not a leader, then, you know, you might just drift away from the fellowship. You know, you don't have, won't have responsibility. So Matthew talked with me about that. And I go, well, probably uh, choosing to lead in something uh, for the motive of uh, that that's the only reason that you would kind of hang around because you have a commitment or an obligation to leadership. Not a good reason to lead. And go back and tell the person who told you that, that's not a good reason to lead <laughs> so that you don't fall away. I said, have you ever heard, Matthew, of, of the senior slump? <laughs> what happens if you're involved in an intimate Christian community in college and you graduate uh, and that community's not around you anymore and you're left floundering trying to figure out where do I find communities and where I move to or in my church? Uh, I said, it's always before us. We always have the choice of whether we'll pursue on our own the kind of uh, growth that God has for us. And so, uh, to his credit, he decided not to be a leader, but he sought God and he felt like the Lord was saying, um, I, you're afraid of talking about your faith. And so, uh, I'm inviting you, Matthew, to do some things this year that will take risks that allow you to proclaim in your faith and testify to who I am. So, on his own then, he sought out opportunities uh, to grow his faith not by being a leader, but by choosing into opportunities to share his faith with others on campus. There's structures in our church that invite us to step into this, to uh, take initiative to allow the reality of our baptism and identification with Christ and our forgiveness from sin that we all share together to take root and hold in our life and allow us to be devoted to a new way of living. So I encourage you to take part in the men's retreat or the women's retreat. Or some of you here today need a spiritual companion to walk with you through loss or through struggle. And you need to ask a Stevens minister, hey, this is what's real for me. I need a companion. I think this will help me grow. My exhortation for us is that we take increased responsibility for our own growth in faith. I think that's been a conviction of the Lord for me this week is that Uh, What I see about these folks in the early church is their devotion, uh, devotion to this this way of following Jesus, and that the Lord's inviting us to take the kinds of steps and put ourselves in the kinds of places where we come to church with an intentionality. I'm trying to grow in generosity. I'm trying to grow in self-control. The Lord's inviting me to give testimony to who He is in my life in the midst of my workplace. For those of us in the room that have been parents, we think about and have thought about how to help our children develop in character, how to be generous, how to have self-control, how not to get angry, how to love their friend, how to share, for heaven's sake. <laughs> uh, and the Lord's invitation is for us is to be on that same kind of game plan for our own lives and to take the kind of initiative to put ourselves in places where our own development as people that are followers of the Lord takes place. What are you choosing to be trained in? That's what was happening here. They were devoting themselves to something so they could be trained in the way of following Jesus. What's the Lord's invitation to you right now for your training? 
in becoming more and more a person who's identified with the death and resurrection of Jesus and as a person who's been forgiven from their sin and invited into a new life of faith and joy and hope. The last thing in closing I want to point out is that they were devoted to sharing in the Spirit-filled life. Um, You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Scripture tells us that we're to be Christians, uh, people who walk in step with the Spirit, not in step with the flesh. God's Spirit dwells in us. The Spirit leads us to truth. The Spirit comforts us. But for these early believers who had been waiting, waiting for the Spirit, Jesus said, wait, wait in Jerusalem. Do not go home. Do not go home. Stay together and wait for the Spirit. They were called to wait for the Spirit so they would have power to witness and to give testimony to Jesus. And so part of what they shared together in their devotion was a devotion to the Holy Spirit and to the calling to be men and women who gave testimony, proclaiming uh, the truth and reality of a living God who reaches down through time and space and history into people's lives and cuts them to the heart and calls them to himself. Well, I want to close, and um, I want to invite us uh, to be people that are quick to repent. That's part of what we shared together, is um, being people that repent. That's what Christians do, and that's what happens in the community of faith. Invite us to be more real together, to be intentional about stepping into the training that the Lord invites us to as we step further into who we are as people who identify in our baptism and with our forgiveness, to be filled with the Spirit for witness, that that's what unites us. We're united when we come to these settings or in other settings around these kinds of things, repentance, our journey with Jesus, about being real, about our witness. I know I want my speech to be in the context of the gathered community, less about football, less about my kids' AYSO soccer. Not that those things are insignificant because that's the whoop and wharf of our life. But I realize I want it to be more about an exchange. People asking me and me asking them, what's the invitation of Jesus in your life? What's Has the word cut you to the heart lately? Why not? Uh, Is there an invitation from the Lord for you to repent? Have you been detouring anywhere? Say more about that. Let's pray together around that detour. That's really hard. Let's figure out how to help one another. I want my speech, my behavior to be centered in the community more around the things that uniquely, uniquely invite us as Christians and call us as Christians to be together. Well, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. So come on up, guys, and we'll, we'll just end with a song. And it's um, um, what I'd like for us to do is um, just as a symbol of the reality that fellowship is about a close relationship around a shared and mutual participation in some very real things that are unique to us that we've talked about this morning as Christians, I'd like for us to actually stand and hold hands in the room. Uh, And we hold hands together as a symbol that we're Christians, and that our fellowship 
is built around these kinds of things. A common repentance, a common baptism, a common forgiveness of sins, and a common sharing and filling of the Holy Spirit. So let's end today with uh, the song that's being uh, presented for us, and let's hold hands as a symbol of that truth.